Yeah, I'm on a little mobile walk with Batty here. That's my excuse. That's my excuse for piling new night schools on, stacking them. But, uh, yeah, Batty doesn't appear in too many mobile episodes, so it's always nice when he does make an appearance while we're on the run, on the walk. You know, this morning I was reading, I guess, a, a parable, Buddhist parable passage, whatever you want to call it. Parable passage, what, it, what difference does it make what you call it? And it was about generosity, and it talked about how, you know, in an act of pure generosity, enlightenment is achieved. But it's not, the enlightenment in that act isn't in the person who is doing it. It's not the person who is, you know, displaying this act of generosity who uh, embodies that enlightenment. It's the action. It's, it's the process of generosity. And I like that idea. And it's for that reason that I think we all feel a little bit dirty when we do something good and report it. Oh, hey, I'm just reporting on my act of generosity here. Just to let you know. And sometimes we have to. I mean, that's the imperfection of who and what we are. Is that no matter how pure your intentions are, no matter how disciplined your mind is, sometimes when you do something good, or I mean, it could be anything you're proud of, you know, it makes you feel a little bit dirty to talk about it. But I do like that idea of, of enlightenment being the process. And I feel like that plays into what I try to talk about on here when I'm not just ranting about what taste means and what music is and any other number of things. You know, it is one of the points I try to hammer home, though, is just... The process is the focus of all this. It's not about, you know, what happens to you or how you get to feel. It's not about you being a quote-unquote generous person, although those people exist. That's the incredible thing about it is sometimes you do meet people who are truly and wholly generous. They don't think about it. And I think that's the idea behind it. Because I know that, you know, I feel that I'm at my most generous. Or when I when I do do something generous, which I don't do as much as I would like. But I do know that when I do something truly generous, it's at its most pure when I forget about it immediately afterward. And not intentionally, not like... I'm going to forget about that so that I make this process more pure. You know, it's not, it's nothing like that. It's just that you naturally forget about it after you do it. And it's something I've learned even getting rid of things, which could be an act of generosity. I think when you clean your house and you get rid of stuff you no longer need, that's often when we give stuff to people. Like, I'm doing that right now. Just cleaning house. You find things, and as long as they... As long as you're not stuck in that sort of hoarder mindset, not that you have to be a hoarder to think this way, but that hoarder sort of mindset where you think, hmm, 
I might need this someday. I might need to hold on to this thing that's been in a closet for five years. You know, when you get away from that mindset and even just getting rid of stuff, you find that you don't remember it afterwards. When you get rid of stuff that you don't need, you completely forget about it. In the moment, it seems like you have to make some decision. In the moment, you're neurotic. Where you think like, oh, you know, do I want to keep this? Do I not want to keep this? It goes back to the last couple episodes, the weighing of options. How it seems to be that weighing of options is really like us at our most neurotic. Because it brings out so many other things when we're trying to make a decision like that. But when you're getting rid of stuff in your house, like during a house cleaning, when you know you need to get rid of stuff... And you just kind of make a decision where it's like, if this thing hasn't been important to me for five years and it's not some sort of artifact of my life that I want to keep, I'm just going to get rid of it. And I wouldn't even be able to tell you what I've gotten rid of. Like even recently, even recently, a friend of mine has been helping me do a deep clean. And I mean, honestly, she's probably done 80% of the work because she just genuinely likes to do it and wants to help. She's being generous. But she'll ask me, like, she'll find something and she'll be like, what about this? Like, things of my mom's in particular. And I'm just like, I don't need that. You know, I, I, I don't need that at all. And uh, it's an interesting feeling to just say that. Because you don't even remember immediately afterwards. Like, I wouldn't even be able, to, be able to tell you what some of those things are. And I did a deep clean of my last house at one point. It kind of plays into what I was talking about a week or two ago about things becoming institutions in your house. I remember at some point just doing a deep clean of that house, just getting rid of tons of stuff that had accumulated over the previous five, six, seven years. And I wouldn't be able to, I, I certainly wouldn't be able to tell you what I get, got rid of then. I couldn't even answer that. And that tells you that, yeah, you did the right thing by getting rid of it if you're not thinking about it now. And, and if there is a, if you do get rid of stuff and you think like, oh, I wish I, I wish I wouldn't have gotten rid of that, and you can, there's no possibility of obtaining it again. Well, that's kind of a cool experience unto itself because it tells you, oh, sometimes things are important. And guess what? Your life goes on even without that important item. But for the most part, you don't remember shit. You don't remember shit. And it's the same thing with just generosity because. You know, you're doing the same thing that you're doing when you're getting rid of things. And like I was saying, often those things are together. Often that's when you donate things to the goodwill, donate things to, you know, places that uh, help people. Places that help people. But it is, all those things are related. It kind of comes from a similar place. And when you're at your most generous, I feel that you do instantly forget and you're not forcing yourself to forget, which turns out is something you can't really do. And, you know, my mom, you know, who's been on my mind a lot lately, especially, you know, going through more of her things lately, you know, her generosity was just the purest I've ever encountered. You know, it was just, she just did it. Sometimes she would bring it up. Like I said, you know, even the most uh, generous, truly deeply generous person will sometimes tell you. And, you know, I'm the sort of person where, you know, I tend to be... It's, it's strange to think about, you know, generosity for me because it's like I don't always offer my generosity to the people who need it the most 
the most basic level, like on a survival level. Like I don't always help those people, and that includes people in my life who are going through hard times. You know, I don't always help the person who is in the worst situation. And I and I'd like to be at a point where I'm not even it's not that I even think about it, because it it seems like when I feel my most generous, when it when my own generosity is at its purest. It might not be somebody who, uh, you know, like I said, is, is needy on paper, but it's just something like something tells me to do it. And, you know, and it could be, I mean, you can be generous with your time. You're just listening to somebody can be a, a generous act. And so it's not always just offering something material, something that will help someone survive. It could be, you know, there's all kinds of generosity. But my mom was someone who gave people, she was generous in every possible way, both with her time as well as, you know, with material things. She liked to buy gifts for people. And I noticed that she did it mainly with people she knew. You know, she wasn't a soup kitchen volunteer, but she managed to be incredibly generous to people she knew, not just people who she thought were cool and she was trying to impress, but just any number of people who passed through her life, she would do things for. And she wasn't a doormat. And that's the most interesting thing about it. Because you think of some people where they end up being a doormat. So it's like you have to strike a balance with those things. And you know, every once in a while, my mom would say something like, oh, there was a, you know, a mom begging for money on the corner with her kid. And, you know, I just, I gave her $100 out of my purse. You know, she would sometimes tell me things like that, but there are probably many more incidents like that that she never mentioned. But sometimes you just have to mention these things because we are people, and I don't know. Sometimes I think it's a way of confirming reality. I think our need to say things sometimes is we want some sort of confirmation that this is all real. And part of that is, you know, sometimes you do feel proud of yourself for doing something good or nice. But going back to the idea of the process of it, where this little passage, parable, story I read, saying that it, enlightenment is in the process. And that's a word I don't use on this show. I don't use enlightenment very much, even though it deals with some of the subject matter that gets discussed on here. And it's not that I'm afraid of using it, because people are afraid to use it. I mean, obviously saying, I'm enlightened, is pretty much like saying, I'm perfect. Hey, I'm a master. I figured it all out. You know, it's, it's bragging. You're a bragger. You tell people, I'm enlightened. You're a bragger. And with that in mind, I think it's helpful to think of it as a process that you can participate in. And on the subject of my mom, I've gone on about it before, so I won't do it this time. But I did feel enlightened while my mom was dying and in the immediate time after she died. I felt that I was enlightened during that period. Does that mean that I was permanently enlightened? No. You come back to a different level. You know, it wasn't a permanent state. A little bit of it stayed with me. Something about that experience stayed with me. If nothing else, just knowing that that state is possible. It's possible to be in that state. And it makes complete sense to me that that process 
would affect me the most during, you know, a difficult tragedy, the, the most difficult tragedy a person can go through. It makes complete sense that the process of enlightenment would be something available for you to participate in while you're experiencing a severe tragedy, if you're prepared in that way. And not everybody is. You know, I'm not saying at all here that, oh, just a, a, a personal tragedy will activate some sort of temporary state of enlightenment. It'll allow you to participate in that process in that moment. I'm not saying that at all because tons of people are unprepared. But there are also probably people who are unprepared who manage to, to reach that state during the most difficult times or to access that process. But uh, anyway, I just I want to I wanted to bring that up because I do think we tend to think of these. I mean, because it, it's grandiose. The idea of enlightenment is grandiose, and that's why people are so reluctant to to talk about it or to use that word. And like I said, it's not even that I'm afraid to use that word. I just think you have to. I mean, I think the reason I don't use it is because I feel like I have to give some sort of explanation like this just to use it casually. And I used to feel that way about other words. I used to feel that way about love. I used to feel that way about the word God, any number of words that have a connotation. You know, there's this need to explain them. And with those words, I did reach a point where I felt like I no longer need to explain them, not just when I'm talking on here, but even just to myself. I no longer had to think about what they mean. So that's one of the reasons I don't use it because I feel like I have to offer an explanation. And even if I try to be as descriptive as possible, the second you veer into explaining, I feel like it's a waste of time. But I just I wanted to highlight that, the idea of states like enlightenment being a process. And I mean, I brought up the words love and God and I'd say the same thing could apply to those. I'd say you can look at those as processes, processes, however you say it, just as much. Maybe the same process. I mean, I would say it's all the same process. I would say when you're talking about love, God, enlightenment, which is the name of my new TV show, Love, God, Enlightenment. Uh, but uh, I would say those all are actually the same process. Different placeholder words for the same process. But thinking of those things in terms of a process, not that there isn't a level of personification. I mean, the reason why we tend to think of enlightenment as something that you as an individual can achieve, and even Buddhist texts talk about it that way. You know, even Buddhist texts deal with the idea that the individual practitioner can become enlightened. That's just how we relate to the process. We relate to the process through our own participation in it, which is one of the reasons why we also personify God. And I'm not against that, because I kind of do it myself. When I say God, I tend to think of it as a man or a person. That's how I relate to the world. 
It's the reason why we watch cartoons of animals, but them simply being animals isn't quite good enough. They have to be animals who dress like people. And we love it. We can't stop doing it. Kids love it. Probably wind. Probably some of that wind sound effect. Distorted wind. You can probably barely hear what I'm saying. Kind of a gentle wind. I can just imagine what it's doing to this phone microphone. For a second while I'm in it. It's a hot day. The wind feels good. The wind is a process too. It is. I mean, you can think of a lot of things. Like that. There's a, quite a lot of wind right here. But uh, anyway, yeah, I mean, you can think of it like that, too. I mean, you can think of it in the same way you would think of weather phenomena. How you, oh, today is rainy. Today is windy. I'm walking through wind. I'm getting rained on. That's a process, too. You know, so much of it is. But I completely understand the idea of relating to these things through our own identity, our own experience. I understand why we personify things that we can't, you know, possibly comprehend, you know, of course. But, uh, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you're wrong for doing that, but I think it's important to remember that what you're describing is some kind of process. And it, the, more, the more that I've thought about all this, I think it kind of applies to everything. Because... With generosity in particular, that act of pure generosity, you could describe that as enlightenment, like this particular parable does, or you could describe that as love, or you could describe that as God, or goodness, or anything. But something I wanted to add to to this on a completely different subject. Speaking of processes, you know, I was thinking about the, the topic of sex. <laughs> And uh, that's another thing that I, I make an effort to not talk about, like just like enlightenment. I, I kind of try to avoid talking about it if I can. It doesn't mean that I'll never talk about it. It doesn't mean that I'm afraid to talk about it. But there is something about it that makes me reluctant. And it's one of those things that there was this social code around where it was like, you don't talk about politics, sex, religion, money. What else is there? They're just these topics that you don't deal with casually. You know, it's not that you can never talk about them with anybody. You have confidants. But it used to be that you don't talk to people about those things right off the bat. You don't force those on people. And part of it's just tact. I mean, it's because when those things are important to somebody, we tend to like hoist them onto the other person. You know, it's, it's, it's what you see when someone becomes a born-again Christian and they immediately try to bring it up right off the bat. They come to your door. You know, missionaries coming to your door. That's not polite conversation. You know, if you're not supposed to talk about religion at the dinner table, strangers coming to your door, knocking on it to tell you about their beliefs, you know, that, that certainly isn't polite. 
but uh you know those were the topics that were there was a guideline in place and i, and I think thinking of these things as guidelines rather than rules are an important way of looking at it because when you have a guideline it doesn't mean that you're going to achieve the it doesn't mean you're going to achieve you know that guideline perfectly but overall you're going to go in the right direction and i think the same is true with that sort of social rule where it's like oh we don't talk about these topics at the dinner table we don't talk about these strangers via small talk It doesn't mean you're not going to talk about them, but you're going to talk about them less. You're going to have fewer awkward conversations. You're going to have fewer arguments. So it's not that you'll never talk about those things with strangers, or, or you'll never have an awkward conversation or a disagreement about those things. It's just that if that's a guideline, you're going to avoid it. And so you'll do it less than you could. And I try to do that on the show with politics, for example, where even though I feel in the last year I've talked about them excessively, and I know I have, I know I've talked about them excessively, even from my weird vantage point. But I do kind of have a guideline around that where I'm going to try not to talk about this. So the fact that I've talked about it as much as I have shows you how possessed we are by politics. And speaking of the sort of person who is born again and they think that they need to tell you immediately about God. They just met you and they, it needs to come up first because it's saving your soul is important. That's what we see now politically where, you know, people who you don't know or people you do know need to tell you immediately about whatever anti-racist action they're undertaking. They need to tell you immediately about their political causes. And you'll see, when, when you see these people discussing these things amongst themselves, they're telling each other to do that. They're telling each other, don't be polite, force the issue. Does that mean there, there's never a time and place to force an issue? No, of course not. There's a time where you address issues with people. But the idea is that you need to spread the good word. Except in that case, when it comes to you know people thinking that you can call out strangers or even call out your friends in casual settings for what are ultimately socio-political issues... I don't see that as entirely different from trying to spread the word of God or save someone's soul. It's just that it might be a little more hostile right off the bat, which should tell you something. Like if your approach to conversation is something that is, if not immediately hostile, has the possibility of creating hostile within one to two sentences, you should second guess your approach. I don't think that process is enlightenment. I don't think that is generous to anybody. To the people you think you're helping, to yourself, to the person you're talking to. And that applies to religion as well as politics. So we can see right off the bat where some of these things that, let's say, in this mythical 1950s world you didn't talk about at the dinner table, that you didn't talk about at Thanksgiving, 
You can see where someone who's possessed by politics or possessed by religion thinks it's their duty to talk about those things at the dinner table. They think it's their duty to bring those things up with somebody right away. Because to them, it is some sort of imminent issue. To them, it's something that is pressing. They have the weight of the world on their shoulders. Their peer group has convinced them that that's what you do. And the fact that your uncle is ignoring the subject at the dinner table means you need to push his face in it even more. That, to me, is not the process that I was describing at the beginning of this. Again, I don't believe that's helping anyone. That's almost like starting on a, as I trip, but that's almost like starting off a conversation saying, I'm enlightened. When you sit down at Thanksgiving dinner with your relatives and you say, we need to, to talk about social issues, we need to talk about politics right now. And I don't, maybe there's not very many people who do exactly that. Maybe I'm dramatizing this a little bit. Although we know people do this. I know I know people who are like this, honestly. I live in freaking Olympia, Washington, you know? Portland isn't too far away. Seattle isn't too far away. We're right in the middle, so you can imagine how that plays out. But uh, with that idea of someone, like, immediately getting into that stuff... It's like starting a conversation by saying, I'm enlightened. And then thinking that you can have a productive conversation after that. You're just communicating it in different words. You think you're talking about something else, but the reality is, nope. You're basically starting a conversation telling someone, I'm enlightened, and thinking that that can go somewhere where it can't. And so that's something that people kind of casually understood about polite conversation in the past. You didn't just launch into it. And I would say sex applies for the same reason. Money applies for the same reason. And what's interesting is people kind of pick and choose their priorities in that way. Like, there are people now who think, like, we need to talk about sex openly all the time, everywhere. Otherwise, somehow, people, otherwise, somehow, that process that everyone obviously indulges in, that process that has created all of us, somehow it will be cast into some dark corner, which admittedly, sometimes it does. Sometimes people are overly, you know, repressive about those things. Some cultures have really sick ways of dealing with those. But people kind of come from this point of view that we need to talk about this as openly and frequently as possible right away. And it's often the same people who think that politics and social issues are also a priority in conversation. The, it's the little politician effect. You know, what I've talked to, what I've talked about on here is the little politicians who they think it's their duty, otherwise, they think it's their duty to communicate that. And you can see that too, with you know, just, just somebody who 
thinks, oh, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna post a picture of myself wearing a mask to communicate with people that they should wear masks. You know, you know, as I've gone on about on here, it's like I am not invested in the mask debate, especially now that people are starting to be told they don't have to wear them. I'm just not invested on either side of that. And when I completely detach myself from the fact that we've been told we have to do that, or we were told that we had to do that, it is kind of fun to live in an era where the mask era, like there is something kind of funny or fun about that, where it's just like, yeah, I live in a time where everywhere I went for a while, people were wearing masks. But when you think about why that is and all the politics involved is when it starts being less fun. But when you look at it as objectively as possible, it's kind of like, well, that was a weird little blip. When you don't think about the other implications of governments imposing those kinds of rules, you can just look at it as, hey, that was a weird little blip that I participated in. But point being, it's like the same sort of idea that someone has when they're like, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to update my profile picture with... Uh, a picture of myself in a mask to communicate to everybody that they should wear masks too. And while there's a certain sort of cute person, and I know people like this, I have a friend like this, and it's, it is very cute. She, uh, you know, got really into like the idea of buying little masks that have prints she likes. Like it became just sort of like a, a fashion thing. And so, you know, she wasn't trying to be a little politician about it and, like, try to tell people they should wear them. But because she had to wear a mask, she decided to, I guess, enjoy it, to find something in it. And on that level, it's not any different than, like, wearing clothes at all. Because it's like, oh, we're told we have to wear clothes, so I might as well enjoy the fashion side of it. But there is the other person I'm talking about who is a little politician, a little pundit, who is trying to communicate that you should do what they're doing, and they're setting an example for you. If they're doing it, you should do it as well. And it's the same sort of mindset that goes into the idea of bringing these, not forbidden, but previously discouraged topics it's, it's that same sort of mindset that thinks you need to bring this up right away. You need to know where this person stands. You need to know how this person feels about a given issue. And if they feel differently from you, it's your job to convince them otherwise. And you better do it right away. Which is just, if you understand debate and argument at all, you know you're going to lose. And by lose, I mean, I don't mean that you're actually going to lose logically. I mean, you're not going to get what you want. Because when you try to open up a conversation dealing with a controversial, controversial subject, when you try to open a conversation with that, it doesn't matter if you win the argument logically. It doesn't matter if you have the facts. Your goal isn't to be right in that moment. Your goal is to convince somebody to think like you. And your chance of, su of success when you take that head-on approach is extremely low. So even if you win an argument logically, even if you have the better points, 
You actually have the goal of convincing them to agree with you. And if you don't, then you're really a bad actor who just wants to fight with somebody, which describes a lot of people who bring these topics up. They bring them up head on because they're often unhappy and just want to bull rush you. And that's common all across the political spectrum. You know, people want to just collide with you. And so all you have to do to win that argument is just avoid the collision. Which seems to be the thing that bothers people the most. Like I was talking about an episode or two ago. People often want to hear the thing they hate from somebody more than they want to hear something they don't understand. And that's especially true when someone's trying to feel you out. Like when someone wants to start a conversation and see where you stand concerning some sort of issue, some sort of cause, some sort of belief. If they don't get an answer, if they don't get an answer that makes sense to them, let's put it that way, they're probably actually going to be more disturbed than they would be if you just declared yourself their enemy. Because that makes it easy for them. They don't have to sit there and think about who you are, whether or not you align with them in some ways, align with them in other ways. And I've run into that myself with the topic of religion. As someone who has not developed, but just become aware of my own faith, faith in the process... It's difficult to have a conversation with people, like even though I read the Bible every night, it's, it's very difficult for me to have conversations with full on Christians about the Bible. I find that we're actually talking about different things sometimes, sometimes we're not, but it doesn't make it easy. It doesn't mean that we share the exact same beliefs. And even just talking about the ideas Sometimes someone will assume that because you're even willing to discuss it or because you read it, that you must be on the same page as them. And you might not be. And then that bothers people because it's like, oh, wait, you were willing to talk to me about the Bible. You were willing to talk to me about the, the Holy Bible. I thought that we were, I thought that we saw things the same way. But then I found out you don't call yourself a Christian. What's up with that? And the easier answer would be just to declare something, just to be like, yeah, sure, I am. But you end up riddling people. Like in that situation, and it's not like I've been through that a lot, because I because I don't bring these things up right off the bat. Because I don't immediately launch into conversations about politics, social issues, religion, money, sex. You know, because I don't launch into those topics, I don't run into this issue that much. But I have, and I do. And so, 
you know, sometimes you end up riddling people where it's like, let's say you want to have a conversation with somebody about God or the Bible. And it's, you know, in the same way, I don't want to bring up enlightenment because I feel like I have to explain something. Oftentimes, when you do that, if you have a conversation about something like that, you have to explain yourself. And not in the sense that, like, they're putting you on the carpet and they're saying, like, explain yourself. I just mean they kind of expect you to define yourself. That might be a better way of putting it. You're expected to define yourself. And personally, I don't enjoy like throwing some silly riddle at someone in a conversation like that where you say, well, I'm not a Christian, but I'm not not a Christian. And I read the Bible and, you know, but that doesn't make me, you know what I mean? It's it, You end up riddling people. And that's the thing I'm talking about when I say people would rather hate you than be confused by you. They would rather understand you or think they understand you and hate you than simply be riddled. But going back to the the topic of sex, that was something that as a little kid, my my best friend and I got completely preoccupied with. Because why wouldn't you? Unless you've been completely exposed to it. It's extremely mysterious, and yet you know that it brought you here. I wouldn't say that it creates all of us individually. I wouldn't say that it creates us. I would say it's the process that brings us here, which is a pretty heavy-duty topic. But people have distanced themselves from that. The reason why people want to talk so casually about it is because they want to completely remove that process with it and they want to focus on the idea that the process is all about pleasure, entertainment, enjoyment. And I'm not against those things, of course not. But I don't like the idea of removing the process from it. We have to remember what this thing is. And when someone gets accused of, you know, being repressive, sexually repressive, whether it's an entire culture who's sexually repressive or an individual's views, an individual's beliefs, they might not be talking about the same thing you're talking about. Because to me, the process that brings us here is a heavy-duty topic It's every bit as heavy, if not heavier, than all of the other topics I'm talking about. And so when someone says they don't want to talk about that, or someone thinks that it's not part of polite conversation to bring sexual expression up at the dinner table, for example, or to talk about it with your dad, they're not necessarily saying you shouldn't be allowed to express yourself, you shouldn't be allowed to feel pleasure, you shouldn't be allowed to give or receive pleasure in that way. That's not necessarily what they're saying. They might just be saying, whoa, that's a heavy-duty, complicated topic. And beyond the weird, like, Adam and Eve nudity aspect of it, beyond the fact that, you know, we hide our genitals from each other, and so it's weird to talk to other people about them, especially when you're an adult 
especially after you've gone through puberty. Like in the same way that you reach a point in your life where you're no longer okay with your mom seeing your dick. You know, you reach a point. I wouldn't be able to tell you when that happened. There was just a point, you know, before puberty, obviously long before puberty, where you reach a point where you're like, nobody gives you a message. Nobody tells you, like, like your parents don't sit you down when you're a little kid and say, hey, uh, you're getting to be eight years old, six years old. It probably starts around then, I would say. Probably like around the time you enter school. Like around the time you enter preschool, maybe before kindergarten, I would even say. It's, it's pretty early. But it's not like anybody ever sits you down. Like in the same way... Like, parents will sit their kids down and give them little speeches, but nobody sits you down and says, Hey, son, we think we've seen enough of your dicky. We think it'd be better if we didn't see your dicky, because now you're five years old. Now you're four years old. It's not okay for you to run around the house naked anymore. Nobody sits you down and tells you that. Culture doesn't even really reinforce it. Like, that's not something that, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I mean, obviously there is something cultural to it because there are tribes, there are people where, you know, they run around naked as adults. Like, obviously there is a large amount of culture to it. But living in this culture, there was never any point, like, that wasn't even something that was subliminally told to us. Because we have this idea that society, this omnipotent, mysterious force called society is constantly convincing us to think a certain way or act a certain way or take on certain roles, take on certain behaviors based on who it tells us we are. And again, it goes back, it's a two-way street. We created society, society reinforces certain behaviors that we naturally do. It doesn't mean it created them. But one thing that I don't believe it gives us any subliminal messaging on is when the right age is to stop running around the house naked. When the right age is to stop showing your parents your dicky. I never remember having any idea at all. I just know that there was a certain point, and I wouldn't be able to pinpoint the day. I wouldn't be able to tell you even how old I was. Only that I was young, and I thought, they don't need to see this anymore, and they don't want to. But it happened. But anyway, it's just it goes back to what I was saying about it wasn't considered polite conversation to bring that up at a certain point, and now there are certain people who think it is. And my friend Nick and I, we were preoccupied with it because it was so mysterious. Like it's less mysterious to let's say someone who was abused or someone who has seen their parents do it or found their brother's porno collection at a very young age. It's less mysterious to them, but it's still mysterious even to those people. But that didn't describe my friends and I. Like, none of us managed to fall in that category. Like, I don't think any of us were ever abused in that way that I know of. You know, I don't think any of my friends, I'm pretty sure none of none of my close friends growing up had anything like that going on in their lives. You know, some of us had come across, like, porn magazines in the woods and different things like that. But it was still incredibly mysterious. And so, like, my best friend Nick and I, we wanted to learn every euphemism. Like, before we even learned what it was, before we even learned the mechanics of it, we wanted to just figure out every euphemism. 
and we'd go around asking other kids about them. We were like these little terrorists. And we'd go up to kids on the playground as early as second grade. Well, I can't tell you what age I was when I no longer felt comfortable running around the house naked. I can tell you that around second grade, my best friend and I and our gang of kids, and we really did operate kind of like a gang, we started going around the playground bringing up these sexual euphemisms we'd heard because we were allowed to watch any movies. We were allowed to watch pretty much any TV. So we weren't restricted in in any way. So we would pick up on things. We would see R-rated movies where these things were discussed and dealt with. And we would ask other kids. And they, what amazes me how, is how clueless other kids were. They had no idea what we were talking about. And we were pretty creative with it as well. And we were pretty, you know, we would ask some weird questions. Like we would go up to kids and say things like, give her a ride on your dad's Harley. Like we found out some kid, like the da- their dad was had a motorcycle. And I remember like we asked him, asked her, I think it was a girl. We were like, give her a ride on your dad's Harley. She's like, yeah, all the time. And we laughed. Like we didn't bully her or anything. It was just, uh, we came up with this euphemism, that, like riding a Harley was sexual. And the one that I don't get is we came up with one. I don't think we came up with, I think we did hear this somewhere. I don't know if it was something that was just in the air, but we started using the word connect to mean, I guess, sexual intercourse. And we were in the same class at the time, my friend Nick and I, and every time our teacher would say the word connect, we would look at each other and laugh. Like I said, I don't know where that one came from. I just remember that we were really preoccupied with it for a while. Or anytime somebody said the word connect, we would laugh. Like, where did that come from? Like, obviously you hear about romantic connection. But I don't know where we got the idea that that itself was a euphemism for sex. Connection, connect. But we would look at each other and laugh every time the second grade teacher said it. And one time she she just stopped everything. She was an older lady and she goes, every time I say the word connect, you and Nick look at each other and laugh. I feel like, you know, people aren't as dumb as you think or they're not as, you know, she was more aware than I think people would give her credit for. Like she noticed, she picked up on the pattern that there was one specific word she used. And I think we were maybe starting to learn cursive. I mean, I feel like there was some reason why she was using that word too. I feel like, because I mean, you'd think like, how often does your teacher say connect? Like, does she say it so often that she's going to notice you laugh every time? I feel like there was some reason she was using it. And then, yeah, she, she noticed though that, I mean, people notice things, especially a teacher. Like, she's just staring out into this sea of kids, 30 kids, and she notices that every time she says a certain word, we look at each other and laugh, because she wants to know why. Like, if, if you notice two kids are listening to you, and when you say a certain thing, they look at each other and laugh, you're eventually going to look for the pattern, especially if you don't understand it. But I feel like she had to have thought that maybe just knowing boys, I mean, she had a son, I think she had to know maybe we were... There was something devious about it for sure, but it was just the funniest thing that she was like, every time I say this word, you you look and laugh. But we spent so much time just preoccupied by learning as many euphemisms as we could, 
apparently picking up some weird ones that I've never even heard since, like Harley. Does your dad have a Harley? And they would say, yeah, and it's like we would laugh. Like, who came up with that one? But, uh... You know, it gets into weird territory, too, though, because he and I were hanging out some years back in our hometown, and we were on the railroad tracks, which they destroyed. They took out the railroad tracks and replaced them with, like, a paved pathway for joggers. And it's like, don't you realize that the abandoned railroad tracks were already a path? You know, cities are stupid like that. That's what happens when you you leave things up to the cities. They're like, well, why don't we turn the railroad tracks, which it turns out we've been walking our entire lives. It's already a path. We don't need bicyclists. We don't need joggers. The railroad is already a great place to walk, as it is. And there's something about walking on railroad tracks that's just eternal and special. But anyway, before they tore out the railroad tracks... We took some beers down to the tracks, and we were just sitting there drinking, and it got into this dark subject matter, and this this show, you know, part of this show is we go from the lightest light to the darkest dark, and here at night school, it's all gray anyway, but we started talking about, like, statistical probability, because we were talking about, like, the st- like sexual abuse statistics, And if you've ever seen those statistics, it's like there's a statistic probability that a certain number of kids in your school have been sexually abused, especially girls. And those probably occur mainly, a lot of them are probably in clusters. Like I would guess that like there are places where like there's one abuser who has gotten to many kids, but a lot of it happens at home. A lot of it happens within families. So just on a, even if your school or your area is lower. Like even if the statistics are lower for whatever reason in your community, and I think there are different like socioeconomic reasons for that in some cases, but even if the statistics are lower, still a certain number of kids, a certain number of girls that you rubbed shoulders with in the hallway were probably abused in some way. Not a ton, but some. And uh, we started talking about it and we, we started naming girls. And each time one of us would name one, we just immediately knew, not necessarily that it's a fact that something happened to them, but we realized that like things that we saw in them at that age, you know, you started to kind of get a a picture. You started to kind of figure something out about, I don't know. and, And it wasn't even necessarily like people who were particularly promiscuous at a young age, although it included that. It was just a vibe. Certain people have a vibe, and obviously there are boys in school too. You know, obviously there are boys in your school who something has happened to them, you know, even though that's, you know, less probable. I'm getting batty in the car here. The mobile episode's about to be over. Um, just giving you a little warning, trying to ease your heartbreak a little bit, slow down your heartbreak. I'm going to set this here for a second. Um But, uh, you know, just just on a statistical probability level, you're going to encounter that. And it was weird because we, we both knew exactly what we were talking about. Like we like the names that he was naming, I immediately knew why he included them in that. I immediately knew why he came up with their name. 
And again, it was something intangible. And it wasn't just the fact that these girls seem maybe a little more promiscuous than others at an early age. It wasn't just that. It was something else. Because it, it might not have been that with some girls. It was just sometimes you have a vibe. And it was a really strange conversation because it was something that never would have crossed your mind growing up unless you'd already been exposed to that sort of thing. Unless you knew that something had happened to somebody. And I would say that that conversation was enlightening. It was an enlightening conversation for both of us because we made this connection that we had never made before about people we grew up with and the reality of that, the reality of what happens to certain people, what happens to certain girls. And you see the statistics, but you don't really put the pieces together. You don't realize that there is something in you that recognizes something in someone that relates to something that happened to them. And I doubt every single girl that we named had something happen to them. But the fact that we both kind of saw the logic to what we were talking about, like we both saw the logic in the names that we were naming. It was kind of a crazy conversation to have 25 years after being in school, after being in elementary school, junior high. It was just a weird conversation to have, I mean, maybe 20 years later this was some years back but you just you know that there is something there and you start to understand how that looks in terms of the people around you and to go back to the idea of polite conversation I think one of the reasons why these things aren't polite conversation one of the reasons why politics religion sex, money, they all have their positive side, as anything does. And that's what people are striving toward when they bring those things up, or think those things need to be front and center. Like, yeah, there are bad actors, there are people who just want to collide, who just want to argue, who just want to you know, fight you, or brainwash you. There are people who want to do that, but a lot of people are coming from a place of good faith where they just want to explain how this thing is good or how if you think this way, your life will be better or other people's lives will be better. I mean, even people who talk about money, which that's never really been a part of my life. Like I've never really talked about money with people, but there's a certain sort of person who just talks about that. There are businessmen where that's something they just get into. Or on the other end of the spectrum, you know, there are people who are poor, who are so acutely aware of that, that they're constantly aware of like rich people and people who have more than them. And so it's awkward when they bring it up too. You know, it's awkward when, when a wealthy person talks to you about money because you're like, wow, this person has a lot more money than me. And I really don't even know how to have a conversation about money with them because we're coming from such different places. It's kind of the same thing on the opposite end of the spectrum when someone is a lot more poor than you and they bring up money. Because you're like, you know, again, we're not coming from the same place. This is awkward. And so a lot of those topics just come down to the fact that it's awkward to bring them up. It's awkward to talk about them, especially if you don't know where that person's coming from. And not just coming from on those topics, just where they're coming from in life. What kind of mood they're in. 
I mean, you know, you, you never even know what mood someone's in when you bring those things up, which is one of the reasons why you test the waters with small talk. One of the reasons why we test the waters with small talk and we don't immediately launch into controversial subjects is because we're trying to actually gauge somebody's mood. We're trying to gauge whether or not they're going to be receptive to other forms of conversation. That's what people are missing out on about small talk. Like people who say, I hate small talk. Well, it's not even about the small talk. The small talk is foreplay. And if that's all it is, that's fine. If all it is is hello, how you doing, goodbye, that's fine. That's all it needs to be. But there's a big function of small talk that is trying to figure out what the other person is feeling in that moment, like just their mood. Like, is this person angry? Are they sad? How do they come across? How open are they to conversation? So that's one of the reasons why we don't launch into controversial controversial subjects right away is because we need to actually gauge not what that person thinks about those things. We need to gauge even if that person is in the right mood to have a conversation about anything. There might be somebody who doesn't even want to talk to you about the weather and you need to tell them about some social issue. You need, you need to talk to them about their soul and God. They just got off work and now they're home and you came to their door and knocked on it. They might completely agree with you, but they're not necessarily going to want to launch into that after a hard day's work, after their, you know, something bad happened to a relative of theirs, after their boss yelled at them. You know, that's one of the reasons we have small talk is it gauges where someone's at in that exact moment. So I got to get going here because I'm back in the car and Batty's not going to be happy if we just hang out in the car. And I'm not, frankly, I'm not either. But that was just some subject matter I wanted to cover. Obviously, Batty offered a lot of his own insight, as he always does. This land is mine. God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children and run free